Okay, so over the last couple of mornings, I've been touching into the theme of transition and just inviting us to bring awareness to the different kinds of change that are going on internally and externally right now. So many of us are just newly arriving here at the Forest Refuge. Well, some of you have been here for quite a while already and are getting used to this new teaching team and a new group of co-meditators. So given that I am new, I should say my name is Jill, for those of you who I haven't met, and Caroline you'll be meeting with in the next few days. So I wanted to highlight this theme of change because in my own practice, I've had a tendency to try to push through or even ignore these kinds of changes and to see these transition periods as obstacles to what I think of as the real practice. But a few years ago now, I heard a training slogan that really stuck with me that I've shared quite a few times now. And that slogan is, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And for myself, that really helped me to see all of those areas of practice that I was missing out on seeing as practice and thinking if I could just get rid of that or if that could be over, then I'd really be able to practice. So when I brought in this understanding, if it's in the way, it is the way, I started to notice an impatient, pushy attitude that often showed up quite strongly at the start of a retreat. It had an unconscious assumption that I should be able to just drop whatever I'd been doing right before the retreat and instantly settle into deep Samadhi, deep sati, deep mindfulness and stability of mind. And since I've been in the teaching role, I've noticed similar tendencies in other meditators too. So these days, whether I'm teaching or doing my own retreat practice, I like to try to bring more awareness to this whole process of starting to be on retreat. And the first stage of that process begins with allowing myself to fully arrive, to try to make a more conscious and humane transition from whatever was happening out there to settling more fully into here, to now, to this. And the word transition is significant in this context because, as I mentioned the other day, acknowledging transition is not something that mainstream culture does very well. More and more, we tend to treat ourselves like machines or even computers and have this sense that we should be able to just switch on and switch off, pick up and put down, move from here to there, start, stop immediately, But this misperception is out of alignment with the truth of our biological nature. Our physical bodies need time to adjust to change. So whether you have just arrived, whether you've been here for a while, whether you might soon be leaving, see if you can allow yourself to consciously honor and acknowledge these shifts that you're going through not only in terms of physically getting here and departing, but also 
those shifts, those changes that happen moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day, season to season. So giving ourselves time to settle in, to relax, to more fully and humanely arrive here is not just an act of kindness to ourselves, it's also an aspect of wisdom. Seeing the truth of impermanence and nature and living more in alignment with it instead of fighting it. So in some ways, this arrival, we can think of it as the process of stepping more fully into taking refuge, coming more deeply into the shelter that this place provides, that sense of shelter that we can even hear in the name of this forest refuge. So as most of you know, taking refuge is a key concept in the Buddha's teachings, And as we just did, we took refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And usually we chant that refuge, taking refuge in Pali. So we might not have much sense even of the literal meaning of those words, let alone how taking refuge might be relevant for any of us here and now. So this evening I wanted to start by just taking a few minutes to explore what taking refuge might mean and how it could be a a useful support for deepening our practice here together. So on the most simple and obvious level, we can think of taking refuge as simply taking time out from our ordinary lives, which for many of us are filled with busyness and complexity and competing demands on our time and our energy and our resources. And then on top of that, we have what seems like an escalation of crises in our communities, our societies, and the world as a whole, including the natural world. And whether we consciously let these challenges in or not, the pain of all the various kinds of social injustice and oppression combined with the intensifying environmental crisis, it takes a toll. So sometimes we do feel the need to retreat, to take refuge from the daily bombardment of distress and give ourselves a gift of some quiet time so that we can strengthen our inner resources and our capacity to be with that when we do come back into the world. So just as the phrase taking refuge suggests, this is a verb, it's an action, it's something we do, or it's a process that we enter into. And here at the Forest Refuge, we have the gift that we're very fortunate to have these specialized conditions that do help us to reorient, bring us back into balance, so that our practice can reveal transformative insights, the deepening of wisdom and compassion that leads to complete freedom of heart and mind. In other words, awakening. Now, it's possible that might sound a little lofty, even a little abstract, So I want to again emphasize that we're engaged in a process here, one that takes time. And we might think of this process as being like a journey, 
So just as with any journey, there are certain resources that can support us along the way. And in my own practice, especially at the start of a retreat, I deliberately orient towards six particular conditions, six resources that can help me to go deeper. And by coincidence, these six conditions all begin with the letter S. So they are safety, silence, solitude, simplicity, slowing down, and stillness. So you don't need to remember all of them. I'm going to say a little bit about each one, and hopefully any that are relevant for your practice right now will stick and be useful. So the first one, safety, is in some ways the most obvious, because implicit in this term refuge is protection from some kind of danger. But perhaps, because it is obvious, it's easy to overlook So in this context, safety is about our shared commitment to non-harming, which we express through taking the five ethical precepts, again, as we just did, making that formal commitment to not killing living beings, to not taking that which is not freely offered, not misusing our sexual energy, not speaking falsely, and not taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. And I know for myself it can be easy to take this commitment to non-harming for granted and treat the refuges as just a kind of formula that we recite out of habit at the start of a retreat. But a few years ago when I was living on staff at IMS, I volunteered in a prison near here. And I would go in uh, to offer meditation to the men every Sunday. And it was quite a striking contrast to move between those two environments. So at IMS, everyone was committed to ethical conduct. Everyone did their best to live by the five precepts. In the prison, on the other hand, most of the people in that environment were reaping the consequences of having broken the precepts in fairly significant ways. And a few of the men were still actively looking for ways to keep breaking them. And so through that experience, I had a direct taste of what it's like to be in an environment where non-harming is not the norm. And I could feel the negative impact on the nervous system, the heart, the psyche, the community, and just how afflictive that was. So here we're fortunate to be in an environment where we are all contributing to this sense of safety. It's co-created by each of us. So this refuge is not just something that we take. It's also something that we give. So in the suttas, the Buddha describes the precepts as five great gifts, gifts that we give to the world. And he emphasizes that this is not a one-way gift. He says by giving what he calls the gift of fearlessness to others, we ourselves get a share in that fearlessness because we don't have to live in fear of being found out or being blamed or shamed or punished. So I'd like to read just a little piece of a quote from this, the sutta in relation to this. 
that really highlights the reciprocal aspect of the gift of fearlessness. And I'll read it just in relation to the first precept about not killing living beings, but the same phrases are used also for the other four precepts. So it says, there is the case where a practitioner abandoning the taking of life abstains from taking life. In doing so, one gives freedom from danger, freedom from animosity, freedom from oppression to limitless numbers of beings. In giving freedom from danger, from animosity, from oppression to limitless numbers of beings, one also gains a share in that limitless freedom from danger, animosity, and oppression. This is the first gift, the first great gift. It's not open to suspicion, and it's unfaulted by knowledgeable contemplatives. That is, the reward of skillfulness, resulting in happiness, leading to what is desirable, pleasurable, and appealing, to welfare and to happiness. So in my readings of the suttas, whenever the Buddha talks about ethical conduct, he always emphasizes the rewards, the happiness that come from this commitment to non-harming. So this gift of not taking life, we can see it in the forest refuge, not only in relation to human beings, but also in relation to the wild creatures that we share this environment with. So having spent quite a few long periods of time at the forest refuge myself at different times of the year, I sometimes wonder if the beings in the forest around us can also sense our commitment to non-harming. So yes, on a practical level, uh, hunting is prohibited in the woodlands around here. So we are living in a wildlife sanctuary. But it seems to me that the animals around here are more at ease than in some of the other places I've visited. So some of you may have noticed the turkeys that have been hanging out outside the admin building for the last few days. And similarly, a few years ago now, I was on retreat here in spring and I came into the hall for the usual early morning meditation. And I was sitting right up here in the corner there And just as the sun was rising, I heard quite a loud rustling in the grass outside that window. And at first I decided I'd try to ignore it and be a so-called good meditator. But eventually curiosity got the better of me and I just had to see what was going on. So I opened my eyes and there was a deer standing right outside the window, so close that its nose was almost touching the glass. And it just stood there and looked at me with direct eye contact for what seemed like quite a long time. We just sat and kind of acknowledged each other. And it didn't seem to have any of that usual nervous, skittish deer energy. It just watched me for a few more minutes and then calmly wandered off into the woods. And then later on, on that same retreat, I was doing walking meditation in the evening on the path that goes up and down to the Buddha. And again, I heard rustling in the long grass right next to the path. So I looked down, and this time it wasn't a deer, it was a skunk. 
And as soon as I recognized what it was, I stopped because I didn't want to frighten it and didn't want it to spray me, obviously. But after a few seconds, I realized it really didn't seem to have any concern about being just a couple of feet from me. It was too busy snuffling through the wildflowers in search of bugs. So I decided to just do walking meditation with the skunk and just walk at the same pace as the skunk, the full length of the Buddha track. And by the time I got to the end of the track, my mind, mindfulness was very strong from paying attention not just to my own walking, but to the skunk walking too. And I felt a real sense of affection, of metta, for this forest creature who seemed to live alongside us without fear. So just a couple of small examples of how the gift of fearlessness is offered and how it's received. So this shared commitment to non-harming, not to take it for granted, because it allows our nervous systems to begin to unwind more and more fully so that we can relax more and more fully into this refuge of freedom from harm. And as an aspect of that commitment to non-harming, we come to the second of the six S's, which is silence. And on retreat, this is the fourth precept, the commitment to refrain from false speech. On retreat becomes the commitment to keeping noble silence. And again, there are different levels of this commitment. The first is very obviously to not communicate with each other, verbally or non-verbally, to not communicate with the outside world, so not using our cell phones, our devices, really to protect our own awareness so that it doesn't become scattered and distracted by unnecessary mental activity. And when our awareness is less distracted by communication out there, we're able to listen to our inner communication more carefully. And I don't know about for you, but for me, it's been quite shocking at times to hear the ways we talk to ourselves. So if we're serious about taking the precepts and practicing right speech, then paying attention to our inner dialogue is important. In the silence, the stories that we're telling ourselves become more obvious and we have an opportunity to recognize some of the self-views, the beliefs, the constructs, the concepts that we bring to our meditation practice. And often these unseen views drive us in ways that aren't helpful. So a key skill in Vipassana practice and insight is learning to recognize the different ways that we proliferate or create papancha around our meditation practice. So papancha, papancha being a Pali word that refers to the mind's tendency to spin out in useless stories. So on a retreat like this, we can uncover papancha in the form of those hidden beliefs and assumptions about what we think is supposed to be happening in our meditation what we think we should be achieving, and what we definitely should not be experiencing. And if these beliefs aren't seen for what they are, they can keep us constantly micromanaging our practice, 
trying to make our experience more like this and less like that and fit more neatly into a model of what good meditation looks like. And all of that effort can be quite exhausting and in many ways futile because the deepest insights arise from learning how to be with experience exactly as it is, not how we'd like it to be. So as we keep releasing these different views and beliefs and we learn how to quiet that inner chatter as those unnecessary monologues start to fade away, we have a chance to discover an even deeper level of silence, which according to one of my teachers, Gil Fransdell, is what the Buddha called noble silence. And he says, this is a beautiful state of mind that comes when discursive thinking has stopped. Discursive thinking refers to thought that proceeds like an inner discourse in our own minds. It may be imagining conversations with others, remembering past conversations, or talking to ourselves. It might involve abstract analytical thinking about what's happening in the present moment. As discursive thinking quiets down the mind becomes more peaceful. As agitation decreases, desire and aversion lessen. And when this inner stilling is accompanied by confidence, purity and equanimity, then the mind is said to experience the fullness of noble silence. So whether or not we've experienced this deeper level of noble silence, we can still practice orienting towards it through settling in and making full benefit of the outer silence that's available here. And in support of this, I sometimes think of mindfulness as being a practice of listening. Listening not just with our ears, but with all of our senses, to every aspect of our experience. So we can start with the actual experience of hearing, and then extend that same receptivity to everything else. So even on the literal level, here at the Forest Refuge, in the silence, we can hear things that are normally drowned out by the clamor of the world. So for example, at night, we might hear the barred owls calling with exquisite clarity. And sometimes we get the wild geese honking or the wind whining through the tree branches and sometimes the drum of rain falling on the wooden walkways. So we can start with literally listening and tuning into those more subtle sounds, listening with the ears, and then embody this approach to mindfulness more and more fully so that we can attune to the exquisite environment all around us and all the creatures who share it with us. So I just mentioned the deer and the skunk and the geese and the owls. And as I've been spending more time at the forest refuge over the last few years, I've started to get more curious about these different inhabitants that we're sharing our natural environment with. And I found out that Massachusetts is the eighth most forested state in the U.S. So there are all kinds of different forest beings that we might encounter 
as we settle into silence. So, for example, there are reptiles, salamanders, and those little red newt things that are actually a juvenile form of salamander. And there are frogs and snakes and turtles and all kinds of birds, chickadees and cardinals and morning doves and woodpeckers, the owls, the turkeys, the geese. There are mammals, small mammals like chipmunks and moles and squirrels, rabbits, woodchucks, porcupines and beavers, skunks and raccoons and opossums. And then there are bigger mammals such as fishers and foxes, coyotes, bobcats, white-tailed deer, black bears and even moose. I still would like to see a moose one day. So this connection with the creatures of the forest, at times it can be an antidote to the loneliness that sometimes naturally can come up when we're in longer retreat. Those times when the lack of social contact here can shade over perhaps into feeling a little bit isolated. And at those times in my own practice, I've tried to investigate, well, what's the difference between loneliness and solitude? Because solitude is the third of these six supports that can deepen our capacity to take refuge. So loneliness for most people is experienced as debilitating. And so at first, when we come into this solitude, it might seem a little intimidating because so much of our pleasure out there is socially based. And it's true that we are relational beings. But unless we know how to be fully alone with ourselves, we can invest a lot of energy in trying to get other people to help us to avoid loneliness, perhaps even expecting them to help us live happily ever after. Invariably, though, there'll be times when our strategies to get our needs met by others are not successful, and that can bring out more loneliness and even despair. So it might sound counterintuitive, but the antidote is not necessarily to collect more friends, but to use the solitude to help us befriend ourselves first. Because when we can get to know ourselves more deeply, we can offer deep kindness and compassion to ourselves, then we're in a much better position outside of the retreat to offer that same deep friendship to others too. So this time in solitude can help strengthen healthy self-knowledge and healthy self-reliance. So there's a famous short haiku poem from the Zen tradition that captures this sense of wholeness very beautifully. It's by a female poet, Izumi Shikibu, who lived in the 10th century in Japan, I understand. She says, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary, mid-sky, I knew myself completely, 
no part left out. So solitude gives us the opportunity to befriend ourselves by resting in the simplicity of just our own company. And simplicity is the fourth of these six supports for refuge. So this simplicity is often very different from how we live our lives outside there, where we often tend to burden ourselves with all kinds of stuff, all kinds of activities, all kinds of busyness, and then wonder why we feel constantly stressed. But in the Buddha's teachings, he pointed over and over to what he referred to as the bliss of renunciation. Now, the English word renunciation has some pretty seriously unpleasant connotations, so it's not one that we would normally naturally associate with bliss. But if we think of renunciation as simplicity, it might start to make more sense. And on retreat, when we can allow ourselves to surrender into the simplicity that's available here, we can experience a surprisingly profound level of ease and happiness and freedom and a powerful understanding that having all our sense pleasures satisfied is not the only way to happiness, even though that's often what mainstream society tries to tell us. Which is not to say that we're practicing asceticism here. There there is some degree of comfort. Some degree of comfort is helpful for our lives and for our dharma practice. But learning how much comfort is necessary is an aspect of wisdom. So there's an essay on this theme by the American monk Tanisaro Bhikkhu, which he's calling Trading Candy for Gold, Renunciation as a Skill. And in it, he describes our tendency to go for the easy option, the quick fix, the instant gratification, rather than what's going to benefit us more deeply and for the longer term. So he says, there's something in all of us that would rather not give things up. We'd prefer to keep the candy and get the gold. But maturity teaches us that we can't have everything, that to indulge in one pleasure often involves denying ourselves another, perhaps better one. Thus, we need to establish clear priorities for investing our limited time and energy where they'll give the most lasting returns. That means giving top priority to the mind. Material things and social relationships are unstable and easily affected by forces beyond our control. So the happiness they offer is fleeting and unreliable. But the well-being of a well-trained mind can survive even aging, illness and death. To train the mind, though, requires time and energy. And this is one reason why the pursuit of true happiness demands that we sacrifice some of our external pleasures. So as Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, it's normal not to want to give things up. But if we're, ex- if we're serious about experiencing true happiness, we need to give, as he says, top priority to the mind and let go of some of our external pleasures so that we can bring more simplicity to our lives. And on on retreat, one way we can do this is uh, 
by practicing what's traditionally known as guarding the sense doors, which means bringing awareness to where and how our energy, our mindfulness, our samadhi or stability of mind tends to get lost and leak out. So in the Buddha's teachings, there are six senses, the five physical senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, plus the mind as a sense door. So in any moment of experience, there's only one of six things happening, a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a physical sensation, or a mental action such as a thought or an emotion. And in insight practice, we're training ourselves to stay steady with whatever arises at any of these sense doors without getting caught in reactivity to it. So not chasing after it, but not resisting it and not spacing out. So as we pay closer attention to what's happening at the sense doors, we recognize that most of us have a tendency to more easily get lost in some senses more than others. For example, some of us are very visual people and our attention is easily pulled into pleasant sights and the urge to look, to chase after enjoyable visual experiences, wishing we had our phone so we could take a few quick photos. Others of us are drawn to food as a source of comfort and delight and our attention gravitates towards pleasant tastes. So we really want to know what's for lunch each day and we read all the food labels on the table before the food is out and we anticipate how delicious each dish is going to be and we can't wait for the lunch bell to ring. So those are just a couple of examples from my own experience. But as an antidote to that agitation, guarding the sense doors can be a powerful strategy. So for example, in relation to sight, We can play with noticing the difference between seeing and looking. Energetically, the two are subtly different. So when we're walking around, if we're practicing with seeing, we might just maintain a soft gaze. Let the eyes kind of settle back in the head and perhaps even use a soft mental note. Seeing, seeing seeing as you simply receive whatever appears at the eye door. And this is very different from looking, which is usually motivated by some kind of wanting. And with practice, we learn to recognize the difference between seeing and looking and to appreciate the relative ease and calm and stillness of seeing rather than the agitation of looking So notice, though, with this strategy, it's not that we're trying to get rid of sights or sounds or avoid pleasant experiences. We're instead training to notice our relationship to them and to stay steady with whatever pleasantness or unpleasantness naturally arises so that it doesn't undermine our mindfulness or stability of attention. So guarding the sense doors is one strategy that supports simplicity. And simplicity has a close relationship with the fifth aspect of being on retreat, which is slowing down. So as a very general principle, the slower you go, the more you'll know. 
So just like driving a car, if we're zooming along at 90, we're going to miss a lot of detail. But if we can slow down to 45 or 30 or even at times 15, whole new dimensions of experience can start to open up to us. And again, though, at first, this can be a challenging practice for many of us because it can bring up some resistance. We're so used to living in our heads, our intellects, and increasingly in a digital world where everything moves very fast. So it's not surprising that when we come on retreat, we find ourselves first zooming around and sometimes getting caught in impatience and restlessness because of the slower pace of life here. But again, as we start to adjust to this slower pace of being, we start to appreciate how bodily calm supports mental calm and vice versa. And then the speed at which we're moving can become a very useful feedback mechanism that reveals the depth of our mindfulness. So if you do notice yourself rushing, you might experiment with just physically stopping for a minute just to break that forward momentum. And in that pause, check what's happening in the body. Feel that energetic leaning forward. Notice what's happening in the heart and the mind, perhaps some kind of wanting, pulling. And notice how you're relating to whatever that experience is. So checking in and noticing the rushing and seeing if you can soften the tension and even release it completely. And even when we're sitting, supposedly still, sometimes we can notice a subtle energetic leaning forward into experience, waiting for the next breath or waiting for something more interesting to happen. And this anticipation, the subtle push to know what's next, 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 it can be softened again. And the more we can learn to trust that everything, including our own practice, is following a natural cycle of development that we don't need to micromanage, the easier it is to just rest in the understanding that there's really nowhere to go There's nothing to do, there's no one to be, and nothing to get or attain. There's a poem by the Polish poet Anna Swear that to me captures some of the flavor of this slowing down and the benefits of moving towards stillness. It's a poem called Priceless Gifts. An empty day without events. And that is why it grew immense as space. And suddenly, happiness of being entered me. I heard in my heartbeat the birth of time. And each instant of life, one after the other, came rushing in like priceless gifts. So these priceless gifts can emerge from the sixth support of refuge, which is stillness. When we put down the burden of constant doing, 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 and as we get used to the stillness, that doing can feel more painful. 
And so we very naturally let go on deeper and deeper levels. And the image of the Buddha here, I think, represents the most profound form of stillness. He's sitting balanced and at ease. And he's also touching the ground, connecting with the stability of the earth beneath him. And he has a serene smile, which suggests that quiet enjoyment and satisfaction that naturally arises from the stillness, the stillness of tranquility, of samadhi or stability of mind, and of equanimity, which you might recognize are three of the seven factors of awakening, those skillful mental qualities that support insight to arise. So for some of us, this deep happiness of stillness might be hard to imagine. But all of the training that we're doing on retreats like this is orienting us in this direction. So a few years ago, I read somewhere that in the Tibetan tradition, the word that's used to refer to meditation literally means getting used to it. And so this idea of getting used to it, I think, can be interpreted in a few different ways. But I found it very helpful in my own practice when there's a sense of being in new territory of some kind to think of meditation as being a way of getting used to it. And again, because stillness is so counter to the freneticism of modern life, many of us have been deeply conditioned to value ourselves through productivity And we might even feel guilty if we're not obviously doing something or producing something or becoming someone. So there are lots of values, mainstream values, society values, competitiveness and individualism and achievements. So there are all these slogans that tell us aim higher, win at all costs, be best. And my favorite Failure is not an option. So there's this push that we see all around us, and it's easy to bring this mindset to our meditation practice too. And even if we have the intention to try to live a more contemplative-oriented life, it's not so easy to escape this conditioning. So there's a famous quote by Thomas Merton that describes this uh, challenge very clearly. He says there's a pervasive form of contemporary violence, and that is activism and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps most common form, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes the work fruitful. So that was written over 50 years ago, and I think since then the pace of life has only become more extreme. 
So I wanted to encourage all of us, including myself, to make the most of this precious opportunity to be here on retreat. Because the more fully we can abide in the refuge that's offered here, the stronger our inner qualities can become. And it's these resources of wisdom and compassion that we can take with us when we eventually leave here as an offering to a world that so desperately needs them. So this is the purpose of taking refuge and of going on retreat. And I wanted to just highlight that because the words refuge and retreat can have connotations of withdrawing, maybe even of running away or escaping. But coming here is not just only about avoiding the challenges of life. We can't build ourselves a cozy nest and stay here forever. So spending time here is not about escapism. It has a much higher purpose. It's about freeing ourselves from afflictive mind states, cultivating skillful mind states in their place, and learning how to live with ever-deepening ease and freedom. So we have to learn how to take the support of the specialized conditions here into our hearts and minds so that then we can bring them out into the world with us. So we can cultivate, make the most of the silence and the solitude, the simplicity, the slowing down and the stillness. And over time, develop the ever-deepening wisdom and compassion that are really the true refuge that all of the Buddha's teachings are pointing to. So I'd like to finish with one last quote from the Buddha, from the Dhammapada, which is about true refuge. They go to many a refuge, to mountains, forests, parks, trees and shrines, people threatened with danger. That's not the secure refuge. That's not the highest refuge. That's not the refuge, having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. But when, having gone for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, you see with right discernment the Four Noble Truths, stress, the cause of stress, the transcending of stress, and the noble eightfold path, the way to the stilling of stress. That's the secure refuge. That's the highest refuge. That's the refuge having gone to which you gain release from all suffering and stress. So may we all use this period of refuge to see clearly so that we can release all suffering and stress. Thank you for your attention. Let's just take one moment of silence before we chant the sharing of blessings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.